Hello! Welcome to the HP Lovecraft Book Club. Uh, in each episode of this podcast, I'm going to look at a little bit of HP Lovecraft's writings. I'm happy to say I, I got a hold of uh, some kind of amateur done collections of his essays and some poems, and there's some stuff that I missed in a previous series that, that I can probably get back to. So um, those will be fun. I think those have been floating around for a while, but I never actually downloaded them. But I finally did and looked at them. And there's some some interesting stuff from his amateur journalism days. That's stuff that's probably should be back in like the first or second series of this podcast. But in any case, we'll, we'll come back to that. Um, uh, but yeah, this is actually the final episode to that. I'll be looking at the third volume of the selected letters of H.P. Lovecraft. And there's only 17 left. So this will be go pretty quickly i think i do think this collection is worth reading it of the three i have two three four one and five i i I have been able to get um this is this is my least favorite of the three collections i guess i think the the second one you get so much about like his his racial theory you got his new york uh adventure that kind of and he has returned to Providence and all that and his making new friends in New York and there's a lot of interesting dynamics in that one and then I think in the fourth volume and then as I remember this is very strong in the fifth volume too you get a lot of reflections on the New Deal reflections on broader history and economics and things like that so it kind of raises the game and that's the same it's the same period that covers like the the Howard Lovecraft letters and I like those so much so um but I still think this, there's a lot of good stuff in here, especially if you're interested like his views on poetry and art. I think that's the, maybe the one thing that came up the most in um, this series of podcasts was was art, um, you know, modernity, modernism, you know, and, you know, especially the letters to Elizabeth Tolbridge. But he writes about this also to, uh, you know, a little bit to August Derleth, a little bit to uh, Clark Ashton Smith and others. So he he touches base on that with many people. So that's a good aspect. Then you get a lot on geography. I think that's another thing that's come up a lot. It's a lot of reflection on geography and the importance of geography for inspiration and for conceiving of space in literature and and how this connects, I think, to his broader views of civilizations, like especially his Quebec trip, his trip to the south. Um, you know, it's a couple trips to the south actually he took in these in these three years that are covered in this these letters. So I, I think there's a lot of valuable stuff in these letters. So I, I really think it's not something that could be missed. But um, it, it's not. I'm, I don't have as fo- much fondness for this one as I do for two and four. Um, but we'll get to four later. Um, so after this episode, just so you know what's coming up, we'll be looking at at fungi from Yugoth. Uh, and I think that's it. I think um, you know, there's like the Quebec travel log. Maybe we could. Maybe I'll consider looking at that if I can get a hold of it. Uh, I think I owe you. Uh, I well, I don't know if I can find it. It's the revisions he wrote for Houdini on debunking stuff, but that's okay because he kind of covers debunking supernatural in, in one of the letters in this set. So um, we could, and and I think it comes up again later in in later letters. So maybe we can do without that. Um, but but for now, I only plan to look at fungi from Ugoth, and then uh, which is a, a a series of 36 sonnets that he wrote i think it was in 2930 yeah that's he talked about sending it in in letters that we've looked at in this series um to to friends to read um i think that was published posthumously though but it's a really nice collection of of little vignettes that sort of have a plot 
connecting them together, but not really. It's, it's still sort of debated that you can make a case either way. Uh, it doesn't really matter because we actually end up for most of it are little vignettes that each kind of have an effect that works like a story, right? And and they're they're basically sonnet sized stories, and and some of them are are quite nice and have a nice and good effect. So it's a much more mature poetry than some of the stuff he's written before, I think. So we'll do that, and then we'll jump into the the story about the fungi from Yugoth, the Whisper in Darkness. That'll be the first story we start with. So we'll look at three Lovecraft stories then, The Whisper in Darkness, uh, At the Mountains of Madness, and The Shadow over Innsmouth, and then jump back into revisions, and we'll keep going, see, um, see where all this takes us. So anyways, to these letters. So this uh, covers, I th yeah, just September to December 1931, um, and it closes out the third volume of the Selected Letters. There's only 17 letters here. Seven of them are to J. Vernon Shea, and we've met him last time in the last episode. He's a young writer who, you know, was bouncing ideas off Lovecraft, and Lovecraft very generously, as he always does, it seems, responds with advice and guidance and talking about you know, the state of weird fiction and the state of publishing and all that. We have two to Elizabeth Tolbridge, continuing that conversation. One to Wilfred Blanche Tallman, one to Robert E. Howard, four to August Derleth, one to Clark Ashton Smith, and one to William Loomley. So again, we don't have any letters to uh, James Ferdinand Morton. Morton doesn't die till 41, so he must be still around. I don't know. We just don't have any good letters, I guess, from this from the later half of 31 to justify inclusion in the selected letters. Um, I don't know. Hopefully he'll come again because I love the letters, the back and forth between these two people. All right. So let's do the seven Vernon Shea uh, letters first. Um, they kind of all deal with different aspects of weird fiction at the time. The first one is dated September 28th, 1931. And it's about weird tales and the problem of popular magazines, I guess. And, you know, he's def he kind of does, does some defense of of weird tales in defense of the work that comes out of weird tales because I, I think it's being criticized a little bit for being a little bit fluffy and as we know it, it isn't it's got a lot of serious work but at the same time Lovecraft is kind of harsh on some other you know magazine uh, works out there or other, other magazines out there which he thinks doesn't have the same quality of writing but there, we do get some nice reflections here on popular um, the popular genre of of, of magazine fiction. Um, well, we can see what he says here. He, he kind of actually says he's not going to limit himself to the standards of, of popular magazine fiction at the time. He says, I'm unwilling to make any concession to its standards and so much disposed to repudiate its entirety in an effect to achieve real aesthetic expression even on the humblest plane. So it admits it's a humble plane, but, but has higher goals personally for his contribution to it. Um, so next he writes to, to uh, J. Vernon Shea uh, about a week later, um, October 4th. And he talks here about kind of the decline of style. And, um, and it kind of gets at why, despite being very fond of 18th century writing, and that style, he's not going to be able to achieve it or somehow beyond him and how style really needs to come out of lived experiences that one has. He says you need to study the past to be a good writer and you got to study past literature um, and style used to be better in the past, but it doesn't mean it can be easily replicated. He, he kind of gives some praise here for Lafcadio Hearn is kind of getting close to achieving that, but he says specifically, he's not able to replicate the Johnson style. Right. And if you remember, he wrote a short story where he tries to do that. 
um, you know, the reminiscence of Dr. You know, something Samuel Johnson about a guy who kind of lived long enough to remember his time with Samuel Johnson. Dr. Dr. Johnson. He says, I can't really fulfill that standard. It's not. It's not of H.P. Lovecraft's time, right? So style is really tied to to time, right? Which I think that's that's not too controversial. Um, then on October 9th, he writes again to Vernon Shea, um, talking about uh, modern art and its power. He actually he's kind of critical of modern art often, but he acknowledges its power, um, and he likes it might be too powerful. He kind of picks on. I think here is where he picks on Gertrude Stein a little bit. Um, some others too. Maybe, maybe it's here. Um, it says, uh, essentially, it's a diagram of the artist's mood. It began with the French Impressionists in the mid 19th century, gained a climax in Gauguin and Cezanne. It's been carried to observe extremes by many inferior theorists today. But I would, it would, but I would hardly call suicide an absurd extreme. It has, in my opinion, a very legitimate power, end quote. So what he's kind of suggesting there is maybe art's just killing itself because it's kind of doomed and it's, it's kind of in this modernist cul-de-sac and, and maybe suicide's a proper response to that. He even gets into a little bit about photorealism, which I think was a, something that artists actually considered. Like once you have photography, uh, art, you know, painting maybe should, or, or even sculpture should do something, can, needs to do something that photography can't, right? So as you get more playing with color or playing with shadow or uh, light like the Impressionists did or just go to abstraction, right? Or try to just focus on emotions, whatever, you know, whatever your opinion of modern artists. It's, you know, there's some actual reason for these things to emerge the way they did. Um, he also talks a little bit about Robert E. Howard here and his work and, and praising Solomon Cain stuff um and then finally he gets to a i think it's a really interesting question which is regionalism and i think this ties to art too especially american art in the early 20th century which was experimenting with regionalism you think of like thomas hart benton and artists like that he doesn't mention any of that i think benton's kind of before this time i mean after he might have been working but i don't think lovecraft's too aware of him at this time if at all but he does talk about the american south where he had been twice in the last previous couple of years. Um, and he talks about the climate and its connection to culture and Southern tastes and all that. And he really does get really pretty close to a, a regionalist argument, even talking about Robert E. Howard here as kind of being a, 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 a representation of like a Southwestern style, I guess. Um, so next we have, uh, I guess it's October 13th. Uh, another, so he's writing about a week, every week to uh, J. Vernon Shea. Um, this one is uh, about, this is, he talks about uh, August Derleth. Um, he's been criticizing August Derleth in the previous letters to, to, to Shea and others saying he's kind of become a bit of a sellout. Um, he's a little bit, I think in this letter or later one, a little bit more sympathetic to him. But that's not the main point of this letter. The main point of this letter is is sexual experiences in creative work, right? And and I think Lovecraft seems to believe that you have to have some kind of experience. You must experience something to write about it. And he's not particularly interested in sex. Of course, he did marry, but it's not something he thinks much about. He doesn't write many kissing books, uh, unfortunately. But, uh, you know, he does sort of acknowledge that, you know, experience in sex is something that's going to be required to write 
about it. Um, but not necessarily to be a good writer. That's the distinction. So we have an older man, you know, kind of writing about sex to a younger man, both of which seem maybe a little bit. I don't know about Jay Vernon on Shane's sex life at all. I don't know that much about Lovecraft either. Just that he married. But he writes this. Sex experience is certainly not necessary to good authorship or other aesthetic endeavors, although the course of dealing seriously in real life, one ought to have all the experiences and perspectives one could possibly command. I'd reverse the general tenor of Durlis' advice by merely suggesting that the bulk of one's work dealing with the details of erotic relationships be postponed till after one is domestically established in the ex accepted way. He'd be a bit of conservative there saying, you know, just don't just go out and pick up a bunch of girls to get the experience, you know, go do it the normal way, get married. Have kids. That's that's his grandfatherly advice to to him. But the the important point here is how he does say that having these kinds of experiences uh, in general is is important part of writing about anything. Um, so next we have October thirtieth uh, to Vernon Shea. He talks about cheese. This is not the first time we've seen him talk about cheese. He wrote in a quite long letter. I think this is the one to long. The, the, the Frank Belknap long letter that's like 50 page letter where he has a whole side about cottage cheese and things uh, he says here cheese is good he likes cheese um, and then he talks about book suggestions to him giving advice on what he can read I think he even lends him some books or says he's willing to lend him some books um, but I think the most interesting thing in this letter maybe except for the cheese uh, aside is is the focus on regional dialects right and so it's kind of building off that conversation about regionalism in the previous letter where you know the reflection is on you know to what degree do you need to kind of get into the dialect to fully appreciate the location right and of course Lovecraft tries to do this he certainly uh has in the past in some of his stories played with dialect and regions a little bit. Um, so he says, I was greatly interested in your remarks on Pittsburgh local usage and did not realize it was so distinctive. It probably partakes of both mid Pennsylvania and Midwestern characteristics. I recall that the use of leave for let is common in Cleveland and Milwaukee and probably other Western towns, end quote. So these are kind of, a lot of these letters are, they're like letters about writing and advice again from an older writer to a younger writer about good writing um this carries on in the november 10th letter to to jay vernon shea where he talks a little bit more about dialects and sounds and how they it's not a very long letter just a little bit about the ooh sound and food and all that but mostly he talks about his own diet um which he always complains is not very good because he doesn't have the money to you know spend on these types of, you know, just to, to raise his diet a little bit. He jokes here, I've never, I've never heard of kale except as a slang term for what is academically known as Jack Berry's dough, mamuza, and long green, although I dimly realized that the frozen metaphor had some sort of obscure vegetable basis. Black-eyed peas are a new one to me, but in New England, we're very fond of baked yellow-eyed beans. So they got some aside about food here. And then, uh, finally, uh, we have a letter dated December 9th, 1931, which is kind of back to, he talks a little bit about food tastes here too, but he gets back to this main issue of weird fiction um, and particularly Arthur Macon and the Macon influence on him, uh, talking a little bit about Great God Pan. And a lot of this letter though also is self-deprecating where he just complains that his own work, he says, my own work is never going to be good enough for, for 
to have any standing on its own, right? Now, this has been proven wrong by history and by later readers. They've, uh, you know, kept him in print. They've kept him popular and, and important. Um, you know, and other writers have carried on his themes and explored him and written about him. So he's been proven wrong with that. But, you know, he is being a little bit self-deprecating there. So taken as a whole, these letters all sort of explore uh, the tricks in the trades of writing, of publishing, of, of inspiration, uh, and then some personal asides as well. So next, let's look at these two letters to Elizabeth Tolbridge. Um, neither of these are... No, one of these is actually pretty good. Um, the first is October 9th, which is simply about the... This is actually written the same day as a, a letter he wrote to to um, Shea. He talks about here about the New England as a setting for weird fiction, right? And there's obviously like some good historical stuff to go from. It's a frontier setting, right? Those are always some good settings, like a new world. Uh, he focuses, of course, on the Salem witchcraft trials as something that's distinctively New England. You also have the maritime influence. So I think if you, it's pretty easy to see how Lovecraft is very much of, you know, writing about New England and tied to New England history, right? But he talks about other regions that can be inspirational, like, uh, you know, transitional periods. And he talks specifically of the late Roman Empire as a transitional period between two worlds where things are falling apart. And that can be similar. And he kind of thinks the modern world is in a similar uh, transitional period to something new. He does say here, though, that the future will be more homogenous. There'll be less regional distinctions. And it's interesting that he's writing at the very, very same time to J. Vernon Shea about, about regionalism. And in the same letter, or in a different letter to on the same day, to, to Tolbridge, he, we see him saying, well, this regionalism is going to die out eventually because, you know, eventually global culture is going to be much more homogenous. And, and that's kind of a pity. But, um, yeah, he says some can be saved. Some can, like even Russia, a tremendous amount has been salvaged. However, I don't think any golden ages do. And he thinks kind of cultures on its decline as well, because it's not nearly as you don't have those civilizations really maintaining that cultures, their cultural identities anymore. I think that's what it comes down to. So there's that one. Then uh, we got to wait a while till we get till December 3rd. Um, which deals with modern civilization. And what he says that's interesting in this letter, it seems to me, is he, he deals with this question of how to preserve folkways, which is, uh, I think, a kind of a relevant question in this age of, of the nation state, right? Because, you know, when you study like geography, a lot of things you, you go to is like preserving folk cultures and preserving local languages and local religions and, and what's being done to preserve them and, and what conditions can they thrive. And what you see again and again is when you see the rise of nation states, you see the suppression of these local identities, right? Whether it's concentration camps in Xinjiang for, for Uyghurs or public schools just generally, you know, enforcing one single language and folklore and, and his vision of history. Um, you get over time, nation states tend to suppress those local, that local diversity, right? Destroying folkways, essentially, right? But in the context of this kind of growing global 
homogeneity. I think Lovecraft is saying in this letter and a little bit in the last one too, that really what's going to, we can preserve this, but there's going to have to be government role in preserving folkways. And so he kind of points to Russia doing that. I don't know how much he knew about the Soviet Union at the time, or you could probably say the Soviet Union wasn't doing much to preserve its various folkways, but somehow a nation state can be something that can preserve and sustain at least one tradition, right? If not all these multiple traditions, which I'm not think Lovecraft's too sympathetic to anyways. Like, I, I don't know how he feels about preserving some local language in the Pacific Islands or something like people now tend to be concerned, concerned, concerned with, but he does think government seems to have a role in that. So it's kind of a, kind of good. So these letters sort of go together dealing with uh, folkways, I think. So next we just got a single letter to Wilfred Branch Tallman. Again, this was someone he wrote uh, a revision for called Two Black Bottles, which I looked at in this podcast already. Um, he's talking here about a story that I think Tallman wrote uh, called Voodoo Express. Oh, no, he's not. He's talking about someone else. Um, but but he talks about the story that seems kind of interesting, Voodoo Express. He says, I'll enjoy seeing this argery specimen Voodoo Express if you come across a conventionally transmittable copy, though I have no idea that A could ever become a market for me. Saying he wouldn't buy this magazine, but maybe he could give me a coffee. Maybe it is. Maybe it is Tolman's letter. I don't know. I didn't look up these details. doesn't matter. Uh, the main thing he gets out in this letter is about kind of cheap fiction, which he kind of correlates with cheap applied science and tech. You know, it's kind of just something functional, something people can kind of piece together, that there's no real kind of spirit there. It's a little repetitive. You get predictable plots, synthetic characters, and writing is just a process of kind of piecing together all these different parts. Um, and so he, he compares this to, to applied science, not true science, right? Um, and he thinks what's kind of missing in some of this writing is atmosphere and mood. And we know how much Lovecraft emphasizes these things in his own work, right? This comes out of his early fondness for Poe and Dunsany, which are all about mood um, and the effect of, of, of feeling, right? They're not as important in terms of their plot. And many of Lovecraft's early stories aren't that plot heavy. They, they will become later on. I think his later stories are much more plot heavy, but not so much in some of those early early works. Um, but he also just gets into why Lovecraft himself can't do this kind of cheap, uh, popular fiction. What he kind of talks about is cheap fiction. Maybe it's too pejorative towards it, but you know, I think we got to acknowledge that some of that exists to a certain degree. Um, he does say, like, I can do that in terms of revisions. So if someone gives me a, you know, a piece of garbage article, you know, story, he'll rework it into something maybe hopefully a little bit better. But as for his original work, he's not going to be able to um, kind of jump into that deep end. And this is reflective of something he's been saying to Vernon Shea at the same time, saying, you know, there's, you know, there's like the standards of magazine fiction are what they are, but Lovecraft is going to try to rise above them. Even if at the end of the day, he says his own work is not going to be remembered. So anyways, that's the Tallman article, uh, letter. Um, then we have one to Robert E. Howard. Um, this is October 30th, 1931. Um, I'll say more about this letter later. It's part of a much longer letter. Uh, where he, I forget all he talks about here, but uh, this little section of this letter mostly it reflects on his preference for ancient Rome, uh, particularly the Old Republic. 
um, which is something we've seen before. I, I don't know if he's talked to Howard about this before. Um, but he's, it's kind of funny here where the issue comes up about the repression of the Romans towards uh, Christians. He writes this, When Rome was presented to me from the second and unfavorable angle of Sunday school horror of Nero and the persecution of Christians, I could never sympathize with the least of the teachers. I felt that one good Roman pagan was worth any six dozen of the cringy slum riffraff who took up with a fantastical, uh, fanatical foreign belief. And I was frankly sorry that the Syrian superstition was not stamped out. I didn't admire the Emperor Nero personally, but that was because he was not the good old Roman type. When it came to the repressive measures of Marcus Aurelius and Diocletianus, I was in complete sympathy with the government and had not a shred of use for the Christian herd. Unquote. So that's why he says my loyalty is more to the old republic than the empire, which fell for this delusion of this Syrian heresy. Using kind of Lovecraft's language there. So anyways, it's, uh, it's always fun to see what he's saying to Robert E. Howard. All right, but then there's just the one. Um, so next we have four letters to uh, August or Leth. Um, and what are these about? They're, they're called, all kind of dealing with, uh, well, it's, it's a mix of issues. One of these letters is really important, though. I'll, I'll talk about the first three and then get to the one that I think is really important. No, this third letter. The third of the fourth letter is very important. And the fourth letter kind of follows up on that. So the November 6th letter, 1931, that he writes to August Derleth, talks about uh, the setting of Dunwich, which is great if you're interested in, like I am, kind of his vision of the New England geographies, how you have kind of Innsmouth and Arkham and Salem and Providence and Dunwich and these other inland communities. Um, and it seems to form a kind of coherent geography of different people with different influences and different racial influences, maybe, and different connections to the sea. There is something definitely going on in these, you know, Kingsport is another, is a much more older town, um, even though tied to the sea, but not as influenced from the outside world. But he makes it very clear here that the setting of Dunwich is meant to be this decadent rural, kind of forgotten backward area. Um, he writes... Similarly, there's no Dunwich, the place being a vague echo of the decadent Massachusetts countryside around Springfield, say Wilbraham, Monson, and Hampton. It would be impossible to make any real place the scene of such bizarre happenings as those who beset my hypothetical towns. At the same time, I take pains to make these places wholly and realistically characteristic of genuine New England seaports. Right? So I, I think that's proof that he is making an effort to realize these, ground these locations as much as he can. Um, so the next one to August or less is dated November 20th. And here he talks about A Rose for Emily, which I think is Faulkner's breakout short story. It's at least one of his early ones and he praises Faulkner and then quickly moves on to talk in general about horror literature um, with him. But the letter I think that's really important here is the one he writes on December 10th, 1931. And the reason why is because this is, you know, if I can't get my hands on this Houdini revision he was talking about, I think it was in the second volume of the Selected Letters, he talked about writing this revision for Houdini, and I never saw it or got my hands on it. If it exists, maybe it's a newspaper or somewhere. But it's all about debunking the supernatural, right? Which is, you know, something, he's not, Houdini wasn't the first uh, magician, 
performer who, who worked to debunk people who are taking advantage of people. People are using these same kind of tricks that magicians use, but using them to take advantage of people and not to entertain, right? Uh, who's that guy that, I think he died recently, Randy. Um, James Randy, is that his name? He, of course, made much of debunking, um, you know, psychics and prognosticators and things like that. And, and so Lovecraft was brought on apparently to revise this essay um and i don't know what he said maybe it was a completely ghost written by lovecraft i think it may have been but what's really important here is if i can find it yeah it's uh, the december 10th one right um is he then he, he in this letter he makes his argument debunking the supernatural because i think Durleth might be more sympathetic to the idea that the supernatural really exists or something and he basically makes two well he starts out with two phases of this argument one the utter and abysmal improbability of non-corporeal human existence so there's just not anything outside of our existence and the second the causes of the perplexing illusions which lead certain persons to believe in the extravagant and untenable doctrines of non-corporeal existence so the second half of it is okay it's one thing to debunk whether it exists or not but the second is to understand why so many people seem to accept it right so he kind of breaks that down but he really gets to the reasons people why that's what's interesting is why do people seem to believe and he says well sometimes there's just an error right you see something you think it's a ghost and you believe it's a ghost but it's not a ghost it's just something else um just fog whatever it might be um a second could be kind of a, a kind of a deja vu or some past experience leads you to interpret a phenomenon in a certain way. He calls that transposition of memory. Um, three, mnemonic selection. This is uh, essentially uh, the bias we have to make patterns out of things around us. Um, Auto hypnosis. He mentions maybe people are essentially brainwashed into believing certain things. Errors in reporting. So he kind of breaks down errors in the quote-unquote science of, of the supernatural. Um, so it's a very, very uh, systematic debunking of the supernatural uh, given to the, in this letter to Derleth. It's like, it's like eight pages long that we have here. And the, whole entire long, the whole letter might be a little bit longer because there are a lot of ellipses throughout it. Um, but he's pretty harsh here. He doesn't seem to have any sympathy at all for the actual existence of the supernatural. So I think this is an important letter, maybe the most important letter in this section of letters um, because it does lay out this this argument, which I think he's given before. I think he's engaged in this before in that job he did for, for Houdini. Um, and then we have uh, a letter on December 23rd where it's very clear that Derleth wrote back something like, well, you can't really prove a negative. You can't prove something, you know, or you can't prove something didn't happen without evidence or something, or you can't prove a negative. He kind of says, like, you can't prove that God doesn't exist. That's kind of that old argument, right? And while that's true, Lovecraft doesn't have any patience for this. He says, you know, that's kind of a, that doesn't get us anywhere. What we need is positive evidence demonstrating um, the reality of things. So we got a little skeptic's toolkit here. What does he write here? As for the controversy, your point that negative evidence in the absence of positive evidence is nil is not a very good one, except in theory. It's true that in a matter where no probabilities exist on either side, negative evidence can scarcely figure. 
Here, however, the case is different. The alleged thing whose existence is under discussion is an improbability of the most overwhelming sort. End quote. So if you follow the argument, he's saying, well, if you're talking about maybe about God, it's like, well, you can't prove he exists. You can't prove he doesn't exist. So, you know, either way, like, yeah, the, the atheist can't prove God doesn't exist. Fine. But when you're making a claim that goes so much against all the evidence we experience every day, right? Like someone says, oh, I can fly now. And I was just around flying. And you got to believe me, I can fly. Well, we've never seen someone fly without like technology helping them uh, in some way. So you would need some kind of positive evidence to prove that to be true. So I think there's nothing here in this particular letter that is in, in both of these letters that doesn't, isn't a contribution to, well, you know, the debunking of the supernatural. And a lot of these arguments are still out there. And I think they hold up. I think he's, this is true. Overwhelming claims require overwhelming evidence. That's essentially what he's saying in this letter. All right. Coming to the end of it here. Um, November 2nd, or November 20th, he wrote a letter to Clark Ashton Smith, which is kind of about Innsmouth. He talks about Newburyport as a desolated port city. And the way he describes it is very much like Innsmouth. Um, so that's, it's kind of like, I kind of see this as sitting alongside his letter to Durlath on November 6th. This is just a week or so later where he's talking about Innsmouth, more of this New England geography. So I, I think someday I, I kind of want to write this up, this like Lovecraft and geography, if no one else has already done this, because not only do you have that fictional geography, you have a global geography that he's kind of built up in his fiction. You got his travels, you got his relationship to the sea, you got um, his feeling that like regionalism as, you know, cultural regionalism affecting literature. There's a lot in these letters and the stories that directly speak to the question of space and, and places in space and geography. So, um, and in relation to each other, I think it's it's good. I think that's a good something that should be written down by someone at some point. Um, anyways, maybe I'll do it. Um, it's not the focus of my research, but the more I've been reading Lovecraft, the more I've been thinking about it. Uh, then we have uh, a little bit in this letter too. This is still the one to Clark Ashton Smith, where Lovecraft says he's unable to write action stories, and he spells it E C H S H U N action stories. Um, which I think we know he's not the best at writing those type of tales. Um, and we're pretty much done here. Uh, all we have left is a December 21st letter to William Lumley. I think we met him last time um, where he talks about of all the things to come back to at, right at the end of this uh, series, right at the end of the third volume of the select letters, we get back to New York. Uh, we thought he was kind of done ranting about New York, but we got a little bit here where he writes, Yes, I have frequently noticed the bestial and repulsive aspect of crowds, especially in such decadent cosmopolitan centers as New York City. Hogarth certainly reproduced the true substance of life, and it takes but little imagination to modify these degraded types into, into the out-and-out -out monsters of fantasy. Is he talking about the painter Hogarth here? Yeah, I think he is. He, Hogarth wrote these kind of scenes of, in the 18th century of decadent kind of uh, London life, right? So Marriage All la Mode is maybe his most famous work. Um, so that's interesting. But then this kind of feeds into art and using art to document decadent communities and things like that. So that's a nice fun letter. All right. That brings us to the end of 
my review uh, of the third volume of the Selected Letters. It's been, what, six, seven hours of content. Hopefully, if you got something out of it, um, if, if not, I'm sorry. You just can skip these, I guess. If you've listened along all, this whole time and don't feel like anything about it, my sincere apologies, but no one told you to keep listening. Um, I'll be back next time with my thoughts on Fungi from Yugoth, which is a cycle of poems. And I, I don't quite know I'm going to go at it yet. Uh, I have notes on every stanza, all 36 sonnets. I don't know if I'll talk about each one, but we'll talk about uh, how to approach it and uh, how it connects to some of his other works. But I'm looking forward to that. It's something I haven't really studied very closely until just now. Um, and then we'll get back into the stories after that. So, so that's going to be it for now. So if you have any questions or thoughts or additions to make to anything in the third volume of the Selected Letters, uh, let me know. Obviously, uh, we could go much deeper into most of these letters, right? But um, yeah, I'm not going to do that. That's for the other podcast. The Voluminous one, they're doing a great job digging deep into, into each individual letter. Um, I'm just trying to kind of piece together the themes and the threads in all these letters. And hopefully that's a, somewhat of a contribution to someone. At the very least, hopefully you can uh, use this as a map or a guide to your own reading uh, of the letters if you need a more efficient read. If you don't want to read them all, just want to know which ones to go to for certain topics, hopefully this helps you do that. Anyways, so that's all for my apology uh, about this. It's me being a completionist and a bit of a psycho. So yeah, apologies about the length of all this, but hopefully someone got something out of it. So that's it. I'll see you next time with uh, my thoughts on Fungi from, from Yugoth. Um, thanks for listening. Oh,